welcome everyone and thank you for joining us for this online conversation with Justin Gibney. As you just heard, I'm Shirley Hoekstra and I'm so pleased to be a Trinity Forum board member, president of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. I'm sitting in for my very good friend Cherie Harder, who's president of the Trinity Forum and the regular host of these remarkable Friday conversations, a silver lining to this pandemic. Well, if you've been watching your TV for the last two weeks, you know that today's topic is a timely one. With the election rapidly approaching in 66 days, and it seems like we are seeing two opposing views of who and what America is and should be. Perhaps you've experienced this too. There seems to be sort of a level of national division that is seemingly increasing. But you know what gives me confidence? is that we are still the world's strongest democracy and that we have, we have really faced political stridency throughout our history. We've survived and we've actually grown by doing what we're doing today, which is fostering an engaged and intentional citizenry. Hence the conversation. So let me introduce Justin Gibney. He is the co-founder and president of the AND campaign which aims at cultivating what he has called a gospel-centric worldview that is committed to both redemptive justice and values-based policy. And he is co-author of a new best-selling book called Compassion and Conviction. I've read it, it's excellent. It's going to be the book that you're gonna to want to read. Justin, welcome. Hey, Shirley, good to see you. Nice to see you again. Say, um, many of our listeners are people of faith, and so I'm gonna just jump right in. Uh, your book is written particularly towards the Christian faith, and here's what you posit for us. You say that our faith should impact our political outlook as believers. So what do you think? What difference will it make to our political outlook because we are people of faith? That's a good question. Uh, well, I think our faith gives us purpose. It gives us a mission. And I think that mission is always connected to everything we do. We know that Christianity isn't just something we do in church. It's something that we, it's a it's a lifestyle. It's a way of viewing the world. And so it certainly has something to say about how we interact uh, with other people. Uh, and so, so, so the way we phrase it and talk about it a lot of times is the love and truth we've you know we there is this gospel centered framework where we look at the love and truth of the gospel and what does it have to say about our interactions because we know that in ephesians 4 um ephesians 4 15 paul tells the church of ephesus that regardless of what's going on christians should be able to speak the truth in love that's something that applies to our interpersonal relationships but also to our public witness and so when we look at love and what the Bible says about love, one thing we, we, should, we should notice is that we're to love others like we love ourselves. Mm. I think one of the things that that does when it comes to our, our public witness is tells us that it can't be self-centered, right? It can't, we can't continue to go along with what I call the politics of Christian self-interest, that we must also be interested in others, if not more than ourselves, right? We need to be thinking about how our decisions are affecting others because it's hard to me for me to believe that as a Christian, you know, I'm that I should be more worried about what's happening to me than what's happening to my neighbor that might be in need. And I think that transforms a lot of things. It makes us more willing to um, go against our own interest. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, when you talk about justice and when, and when you talk about moral order, 
you're asking people to go against their self-interest sometimes to do what's right. Uh, and Christians shouldn't have a problem with doing that because our faith demands that. It demands that kind of self-sacrifice, which is a very different viewpoint than I think many other people that come into the public square. Uh, Justin, you set a very high standard there. And I'd like you to help us think about where are the examples that you have seen where people have laid down their self-interest for the good of others? Yeah, I think there's various examples. One that I usually point to is the civil rights movement. Um, my grandfather was a civil rights era preacher. Uh, and I got a chance to see uh, and just, you know, understand from him what the what was really the, the, the ethos behind that, that conversation. And, and it was the motivation was God to to walk into a situation that seem, may seem hopeless, but to somehow have hope to somehow have faith that drives you to forgive someone who might have done wrong to you, but then also look them in the eye and demand justice, right? I think these are some of the things that we can look at, whether we look at the life of Fannie Lou Hamer, we look at the life of Dorothy Day, people who are about self-sacrifice, didn't feel like they needed to um, you know, uh, go hurt someone else just to tell the truth and to really be, be a convictional Christian. These are examples that I think we can follow of how to be faithful in our civic engagement. Well, they're, they're excellent examples that the, the kind of bar you're setting for us as Christians in politics is that we're going to have to let go of our desire to get even uh, or to be right um, and to say, um, I can lay that down and yet speak the truth in love. How did you come to this vision? Yeah, I think it's just just reading the Bible and trying to get an understanding of where we can go wrong. I think a lot of what we're missing in the public square today is moral imagination, right? And what moral imagination does is it allows us to see past this moment, right? It allows us to see, see past what, what, what has happened historically and what's happening right now. Sometimes there are things that the moment is hiding from you. And I think it's your faith and, and kind of seeing things through the eyes of God that allows you to see past the, uh, the moment at hand. Yes, um, faith in what can happen, faith in the unseen. So um, in your uh, suggestion for a brand of politics that would give glory to God, you talk about it as being Christ-centered, loving, and caring. Um, and this is founded in your own deep sense of faith. So how did you come to believe that Civic participation will not glorify God if it's placed above worship or sharing our faith or Christian fellowship. Who shaped your Christian beliefs? Again, I, I would just have to say family. Uh, my, my church home grow, growing up, my church home now, uh, the elders and how, they, and how they dealt with us and dealt with different issues. Just to say, and, and not perfectly often, I've said this before, one of the key principles of the civil rights movement was that you can never allow your uh, opposition to have a negative impact on your spirit uh, because you can win all kind of policy debates. Uh, you can you, you know, beat them within the conversation, but you lose something of yourself. Uh, and so that, that's one of the things that I think has really been driven home. And it's not always easy. Uh, it's not something I always get 100% right, but it is a principle and something that we should aspire to as Christians because we know this isn't an ultimate thing. And, and we talk a lot about with the AND campaign about ultimate things, as important as politics is. I mean, I've committed a lot of my life to, uh, to the political arena. It's still not an ultimate thing. And I think that's one of those um, 
understandings that Christians allow Christians to back up and say, let me do this the right way because I have, I have an award that's not, I have a reward that's not necessarily tied to this very moment. I have to, I have to uh, think past it. So actually what you're saying is your Christian faith gives you freedom, not freedom to define yourself and perhaps um, an identity uh, uh, as, a, as a person here with an earthly call, but your home being in heaven gives you this freedom to say, maybe I'm even going to look foolish for the gospel. Yeah, I think it has to. I mean, this is an otherworldly faith. It's not always the most rational thing to do to not try to be vengeant or, or, or have uh, a revenge against someone who has who's done something wrong against you or to give someone the benefit of, of the doubt who doesn't deserve it. But that's not what we're here for. I think Christians have to realize that every day that we're in politics, we have another opportunity to show people the will and the character of God. And that's why we, we really have to be more about the, um, the witness that we're putting out there than actually winning these political battles. Again, I'm a, I'm a political strategist. I don't go to any situation not trying to win, but when in conflict, I do believe that our witness has to be more important than winning any political battle. All right, I'm gonna press you a little bit on that because what we know in politics is it's about winning, right? It's about getting your policies passed. It's about getting laws passed or winning in court. And um, look, uh, you were a three-sport athlete in high school, football, basketball, cross-country, and the debate team. Uh, you played football for Vanderbilt University, big-time Southern sports, uh, before going to law school. Okay, these are high-octane high octane activities. And yet you do say, just like you said before, that you have to put your witness before the win. How do we actually do that? Yeah, so as we talked about before, one of the reasons that I got into politics, maybe not the right reason, but one of the reasons I got into politics was because of that kind of comp competitive spirit. But that doesn't mean we need to be opposition centered. And one of the problems that we have today is that our politics is very much about a, a response or a reaction to our opposition. It's, a, it's this cycle of whataboutism where we say, you know, you say that I did something and instead of explaining why I did it or didn't do it, I just point out what you did. And that can't be the way for the Christian because the Christian has a different standard, right? We, we are doing the work of our father here. We're not, uh, you know, what we do should never be controlled by uh, the, the, you know, some of the things that are coming from our opposition. We have our own set of standards and we have to make sure that we understand our purpose in politics. And if our purpose in politics is to defend human dignity and to uh, promote human flourishing, then we can't allow ourselves to be distracted by many of the things that are going on. We have to make sure that we stay focused. Uh, Justin, um, Christians haven't always, and, and then some might say not as, uh, it's been infrequent, um, where Christians have failed to act on behalf of the good of others. Um, and they acted, as we were talking about earlier in this conversation, for their self-interest. You write in your book about the, the Trail of Tears, where 50,000 indigenous people were removed from southeastern United States, and uh, they uh, 4,000 people died, and other people got their land. And you've got some other examples where uh, people laid down their life and said, look, we can change, and the American Disabilities Act was introduced. Can you tell us, uh, as people of faith, and uh, people of, uh, who are not people of faith on the call say, how do you reconcile this, uh, the, the commands of the gospel with the hypocrisy and the failure of Christians? Uh, I, I don't think that's too tough. It's unfortunate 
but I think we're broken people. Uh, and although we, we have a book and we have, you know, a, a, uh, a savior and Jesus uh, that, are, that are perfect and that show us the way, we don't always get it right. And unfortunately throughout history, that has been very clear. Uh, but, I, but I'll say this, this is even more of a reason that Christians need to engage in, in politics the right way. So, I mean, no one should question whether they are loved by Christians because of our politics. We should be motivated by the fact that people aren't, aren't necessarily clear on that, but we do have an opportunity to make it more clear. And that's why I press Christians so strongly on doing justice and not just criticizing how other people do justice. If you want people to really know how to do it right, give them an example. Because walking away and just saying, well, I'm not gonna do it because other people have a distorted view of justice is not going to help the situation. Get in there and do it right and maybe they'll follow you. Maybe that'll actually help our evangelism and that we're willing to sacrifice ourselves to do that. So who are the people that you can point to that you think were people of faith who were able to do what you say in your book about um, love, loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then um, sharing the hope of the gospel around the world. But then I love the way that you said this, the great requirement, which we all know from the famous passage, which is to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. How, who do you think have combined those things, not perfectly, but as the kind of Christian example that would give us hope and courage uh, to do just as, you're, just as you're suggesting? Yeah, I think, you know, some of the people I've, I've, I've mentioned are people like Dorothy Day. I mean, this, yeah. is, this is someone who uh, was reflective of the will and character of God, right? This is someone who defied kind of these uh, partisan uh, uh, divisions that we see, someone who was pro-life, someone who was very, very committed and um, uh, committed to the poor. This is something that, that we've seen. I mean, you look at someone like Frederick Douglass, who was born a slave, but somehow had the faith and understanding to say, I don't want to tear down the union to free the slaves. I think the union is the mechanism to free the slaves. And so I will do, you know, I'll, I'll work with anybody to do good and no one to do, uh, to do evil. Uh, he was willing to have conversations. You know, today we cancel people that we don't want to hear from. He wanted to have a conversation and a debate uh, with slaveholders because he believed that his case had merit and that he could make that case. So he didn't have to run from the opposition. He wanted to engage the opposition because he believed in himself. He didn't want to be treated uh, with pity. He wanted to be treated as a peer and as someone that had something to say that was of value uh, to, uh, to our country. And he was able to do that and have a profound effect uh, on history. You talk about the cancel culture that we're living in. Actually, you're about combining things that don't naturally go together. Uh, that is one of the brilliant aspects of your AND campaign. You put this love and truth, compassion and conviction, social justice and moral order. So many people find those things at odds, and yet you have put them together, uh, not canceling each other out. So can you give some concrete examples again about where you see this social justice and for instance, moral order coming together in a way that for people of faith, for Christian people uh, should be the way we go forward and what will it cost us to put social justice and moral order together? Well, yeah, I would say this. I think that it, the Bible puts those things together. I think the Bible puts compassion and conviction and love and truth and, and justice and moral order together. And I think without the two, uh, we see an imbalance. Uh, I like the way uh, that, that Tim Keller put it. He said that love without truth is, is kind of formless, right? There's, you know, it's, 
It's, it's too malleable. You can make it into anything you want it to be. And truth without love is harshness. It's, it's mean. I think one of the problems that we have on the left is that we want to, you know, stand up for justice, but at the same time, don't want to have absolute truth. And if you don't have absolute truth and you don't have absolute standards that are unconditional, that's a, that apply to everybody, how do you demand that someone else do justice? On what basis, right? And so we see that's a problem. Again, if you look at the civil rights movement, and this is why I think that the black church tradition has something to say to this moment, not that we've been perfect, but we do have something to say to this moment. You saw people going into a conversation saying, yes, you have to do justice because we all have human dignity. And I think that's where a lot of um, the Christian politics to, should start the understanding of human dignity and making people sure people are treated based on their worth. So they came into the public square and said, we have human dignity, we ought to be treated that way. And yet we still have a standard that we must apply to ourselves, right? So they're asking love from you, but also still applying a standard to themselves. One of the problems that I have is when people ask for social justice, but then act like the people that need justice don't have agency. We do have agency. We can, you know, we're not asking to be uh, necessarily put on a pedestal or treated like children. We're asking for an opportunity uh, to, to have the freedom to pursue the things that we know this country was built to pursue. And that's how I think this works out. So much of the conversation that we talk about, Shirley, is Christians framing the issues for themselves. Right. If you allow the Democratic Party or the Republican Party to frame the issues for you, you're going to be, be in a bad place. Look, we're both attorneys. And so we know that if you frame a question or an issue the wrong way, then there can actually be two wrong answers. And so many times in society, I think we're at a place where we have two wrong answers. You take the abortion issue, you know, it's either do you care about women or do you care about children? No, we care about both. So we'll care about more, more, uh, more uh, maternal mortality rates and we'll care about uh, unborn lives. Those two things aren't separate. There's no reason those two things can't be put together. You talk about the LGBTQ conversation. They, the way it's framed is that either you affirm someone or you hate them. In no other area of life is that the way that we frame things. We love people and sometimes we have disagreements, but we still care for them and would sacrifice our lives for them. The church hasn't been clear on that sometimes. Sometimes we have the conviction and we've been kind of uh, uh, condem condemned people without showing them love. Or sometimes on the further left, we've had the compassion, but not understood that it's not all that compassionate to, to people that you won't tell the truth to. And so people also need to know the truth. And that's how we think you should combine the two. But you can't do it if, if you're um, adhering too closely to progressivism or conservatism ideologically. It really has to be gospel centered. And so this, again, goes to that freedom to ask the question that we think should be asked, not just buying into the question that's on the table. That's right. Now, you have a, a hero in Howard Thurman. And you talk about how he talked uh, at length about civility in politics uh, and or the lack of civility in politics and human dignity. Uh, what have you learned, especially from the perspective of Howard Thurman? I think Howard Thurman spoke very eloquently on and, and helped us understand that civil, incivility and hatred really just, number one, aren't effective, right? Uh, he, he talked about it like an infection. And we know that Christians, we are to be a disinfectant, right? Part of what being the salt is, is to be in disinfectant. But if you allow your political opponents or even your allies to make you angry, to make you someone who is bitter, then you've actually caught the infection instead of being a disinfectant. And that's one of the things that he says so well. The other thing I would point out is, especially in this day of time, I think we overestimate 
how effective incivility is. It's, it's actually not very effective. It doesn't persuade anyone. And we also have to understand what's the uh, alternative to civility. It surprises me when so many people who are advocating for incivility don't understand that it's civility that gives the small guy a chance to even be part of the conversation. It's civility that gives women who need to be heard a chance to have to be part of the conversation. The opposite of civility is just might is right. So you don't hear any of the other uh, voices that need to be a part of the conversation. It's always interesting me to, to see that, but I don't think people understand the alternatives to civility, and they're just not something that um, make our democracy uh, work. Yeah, civility has a generousness to it. Civility says, I don't have to be at the center. I don't have to be the loudest. I don't have to prove my point at every turn. Actually, I'm a curious person. I'm a person that wants to know your point of view. Uh, I have intellectual honesty. Maybe, in fact, you have something that I could learn. I, I think that that generosity that uh, you've described, uh, that Howard Thurman was talking about, um, is grounded in this hope that it's not just my way that will make it better, but maybe we as a community could make it better. That's right. I, I think that's a huge part of it. And, and something else you hit on is, is the humility the understanding, especially as Christians, that we are all broken, that there's a chance that all of us are getting something very seriously wrong. And if that's the case, we better listen. Yes. Uh, thank you. I mean, this conversation I knew would just go like that. And yet we have a whole half hour, but we've got some questions from our listeners. Uh, first, from our sponsor, Rhonda Huron, uh, and from Southeastern University, what do Christians, Justin, need to unlearn from what we've been taught, even in the church, in order for us to really truly embrace the love, justice, do mercy, and walk humbly with our God, where and how have Christians missed the mark on this ability to unlearn what we've gotten wrong? Mm. I think, you know, I think part of it starts with where are we looking for answers? Are we looking for answers uh, from the Bible, from our faith community? Are we looking for answers outside of that in a place that is really broken? And I think that's one of the main things we see. We've conflated things like uh, ideological conservatism with theological conservatism. I'm theologically conservative, but I don't think that would always lead me to be ideologically conservative. Uh, and when you conflate those two things, it's very easy to put the interest of your tribe, so to speak, in front of the interests uh, of other people, in front of the common good, because we begin to see things with a lens that is just simply not Christian. And I think that the way to correct that is to step back. And, and one practical way we suggest in the book is to be able to list probably six things that if you lean left or lean right, six things that your side of the conversation gets wrong. If you can't list those six things that get, they get wrong, and I believe, believe me, there's way more than six that both sides get wrong, then maybe you're a little too close to it. Maybe you've been somewhat indoctrinated. But I think the ability to step back and critique your side prevents us from being in the situation that we found where we're just going along with the ideology, but not really making it go through kind of biblical scrutiny. And that biblical scrutiny is what's going to keep us honest. Well, you, you talk about... Uh... Uh, being honest about your own point of view and honest about another po person's point of view, that actually requires this sort of courage and bigness of heart that, that transcends tribalism and aligns ourselves with, with Jesus. I mean, that, that is what, what you are suggesting. 
Here, let me give you another question here uh, from Scott. How do we interact with and dialogue about Christian views on political issues without improperly using the Bible or weaponizing the Bible? Sort of as, as that um, way of saying, well, now we've got the truth, here we go. Have you ever seen the Bible weaponized? Oh yeah, I think the Bible is weaponized all the time, unfortunately. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that in the book we talk about, we think the Bible gives us a framework for politics, but we also think it's, 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 it's not okay to take something out of the Bible and just ignore it or to put something in there. So sometimes we act like things are uh, promoted by the Bible that really aren't, right? And sometimes we use it uh, to, to kind of bolster our point when the Bible doesn't specifically talk about that. So there are many things that Christians can dis disagree on in politics that the Bible doesn't necessarily speak on. Within that framework, there's room for disagreement. We may, may never agree on how much the government should interact with, with us when it comes to economics. We can, we can have those disagreements, but if I'm a, to come and say, no, the Bible says that taxes should be this much and we have to be, you know, we have to have a safe, safety net exactly this large, then I am taking it out of, out of context. And I'm doing, I'm doing something that's just as bad as ignoring kind of some of the edicts that force me to treat people a certain way. I have to make sure that I'm honest. And if I have to make a case, sometimes I have to make a case that's not necessarily based on something the Bible is saying specifically. Right. Sometimes I have to make my case on, based on other issues because there's room to disagree within the Bible. So we don't have to agree on every single issue. And we should be very careful of acting like the Bible says something that it doesn't. Well, uh, this is about the stewardship um, of our faith, the credibility about our faith, and um, again, misusing scripture uh, just undercuts uh, later our witness, and you and the book and your um, organization is really clear about not misusing the tools that you have, again, back to our prior point, about winning at all costs. It just shouldn't happen. Exactly. Let me give you another uh, question from uh, an anonymous viewer. How should Christians view the role of government? Is it to implement Christian morality or is it to create laws and make decisions in the interest of a pluralistic society, such as good health care, or is maybe it a combo situation? So again, how should Christians view the role of government? That's a great question. Um, and as you know, we talk about that thoroughly in the book. But, but let me just say this. I think the two roles of government, we know that government is, is God-ordained, right? Uh, so right. it's not something that we should just go against just because we, we don't feel like we agree with every single thing, right? Um, and I think the two main purposes of government are order and justice. Uh, so, so no, we are not, I don't think we are here, especially in this constitutional republic, we're not here to create a theocracy to make people go on with everything we say when it comes to, you know, making sure that people aren't treated as if they don't have that in that we talk, we're talking about before we should absolutely be using our values to do that. Our values matter. And so it's not necessarily about creating a theocracy, but there are no laws without values. And so values are always going to play a role in creating laws and we should apply that. But I, I would be careful because it is a thin, it, you know, there's a, a thin line between those two things. I truly believe that Christians should be able to articulate their values in a way where people see that it is practical and good for everyone. And I think if we can't do that, and I think we've gotten caught flat-footed uh, sometimes, even when it came to marriage and things like that, I think we were right, but I don't think we articulated necessarily how that benefited everyone, right? It, it sounded more like the Bible says this, and so you should do it, rather than no, 
The Bible does say this, say this, and this is why it's practical and good for us all. When we can articulate things in that way, then I think people receive it a little bit better. And it shows that it's not about theocracy, it's about the common good and it's about helping everyone. Self-interest never looks good. Right. Right. And when you see self-interest, you're sort of stuck uh, because you say, well, uh, look, that just doesn't ring true. And, and then you have to be prepared, I think, to, to present a better and more cogent uh, solution uh, to whatever the conversation is. I think, right. and what I appreciate you uh, about you, Justin, is you actually are honest about when Christians, even though we have this high calling uh, and we have great foundation, uh, actually uh, fail to live up to our own standards. And I think when we don't admit that, uh, then the level of hypocrisy that people will often level at Christians sticks in a way uh, that that is both uh, fair in, in, in the instance, instances and then unfair because it's painted with too broad a brush. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I, I think when we're not intellectually honest, we lose credibility. Uh, and credibility is currency when it comes to public discourse. And so you know, when we deny something like that, we're not convincing anybody, right? Everybody else sees it. And so we're not really doing anything that's helpful, although we convince ourselves sometimes that we are. When we're willing to admit that we got something wrong or willing to admit sometimes something that seems like an argument against self-interest, now we have the credibility to speak into the conversation in a way that others have to give credence to because they know we're being honest. And there's just too many people that are defending themselves that have this self-defensive posture and think they're hiding things that are obvious to everybody who, you know, who are good faith observer, observers. And we just need to be honest about those things. I know. Well, uh, when we talk about uh, civility and we talk about centering the conversation in a fair way, what role do you think the media plays in helping that or hurting that in your opinion? The media plays a huge role. Um, you know, when the media is trying to push narratives uh, instead of just pushing the facts, again, it's one of those situations where people can usually see it, right? Uh, I think sometimes they convince us themselves that they can't see it. And so I think there are a lot of people that do media right. There are a lot of journalists that do a very good job, and I'm very thankful for that. But they really have to, I mean, they frame the issues. Somebody said they can't control what you think, but they can control what you think about. Uh, and so we really have to be honest. I mean, integrity go so far in this conversation. We cannot just be people that walk into institutions who are warriors for our, our, our ideology. We have to have great, we have to have principles that transcend our ideological tribe, that transcend partisanship, or we end up in a situation like we are now, where again, there's just no trust and no common ground between the two sides because both of them have become bankrupt when it comes to that currency of credibility. And so, and then the people who try to connect both and try to um, hold both accountable into higher standards, we call them, you know, weak moderates, or they, we say they just don't care enough about the issue. And so we get into this place where we're not even having a conversation, we're just speaking past uh, one another. And so it's that integrity and intellectual honesty that really is key to any democracy, to, to, to being able to work together and get things done in a pluralistic society. Uh, two questions to follow up on that. One is when you talk about um, civility, are there times when the civility actually interferes with what, what needs to be done. Like uh, there are issues that our black and brown brothers and sisters need and we as a nation need to address. And for so long as it 
it just feels too soft. And, and maybe that's a wrong way to say that civility is soft. Things don't get done that should really get done. Civility allows for a lot of things, uh, but I think sometimes we make civility being quiet and not, uh, not interrupting people. And I don't think that's necessarily always civility. Uh, and yeah, there are probably times when civility has come to an end, right? I mean, maybe it was a civil war or something like that. But what, where, what are we stepping into? And very rarely do we want to say that we're at a moment where we're past civility. I don't think we're past civility. I don't think civility asks black and brown people not to speak up, not to be loud, not to be passionate about what they believe, not to be passionate about fighting injustice. I don't believe that that's what civility is. To your point, there have been people who use civility to say, hey, just be quiet for now. Let's just all get along. Let's not talk loud. Let's just wait. I don't think that's what civility is. And a good Howard Thurman, again, I think would disagree with that definition of civility. Civility uh, has nothing to do with being uh, docile. All right. That, that, that's the, that is, I think, something that's really helpful for all of us to understand. Civility is not a doormat or uh, being docile. Uh, and the more you practice civility, the better you get at finding that sweet spot of passion, maybe even loud, uh, certainly um, uh, pressed into getting the right and needed justice. Uh, but there is a way to do it so that you have not stomped on or belittled uh, someone else into being quiet. That's right. Let me ask uh, this about what you, how you define justice. Yeah, I think it starts again with, with uh, the Imago Dei. I think it starts with the fact that we are all created in God's image. And if we're all created in God's image, we have a certain level of worth, right? And so there's a certain standard by which we must be treated because we have that dignity, because we have them, those inalienable rights that did not come from the state, that came from God right? A worth that came from God. And that's what I think it's about. I think it's about the fairness and how somebody should be treated. What can we not do to someone because they have that innate, innate worth? That's what we should be looking at. And so when we talk about biblical justice, we're talking about how should people, you know, how should people be treated? What is right and wrong? There's two sides of that conversation, but we really have to engage it and we have to engage it. And I don't know how these people separate it, but that biblical justice has a social and racial application. Right. There's a way to apply it to social and racial issues that is real because all those things have human, all, the, all these people have human dignity. And so we can't back up and say, well, there's biblical justice, but I don't really want to apply it in the social arena because there's people who do that the wrong way. There's people who do everything the wrong way. Right. The, the world has um, kind of uh, tarnished a lot of things, whether it be marriage or whether, you know, uh, uh, child rearing. All those things have been tarnished. Does that mean we don't do them? No, it means that we try to do them better and we try to give people a better example of how to go about it, a biblical example. And that's what I would urge, urge Christians to do. But, but justice has to be based on the Imago Dei and our motivation has to be the, the second half of the, um, the great commandment. And, and to, that, to your point there, um, uh, uh, when we think about political parties that have at its center this justice uh, built in around the Imago Dei, I think people are feeling, have felt that sometimes when we see this deep division, that there, there's not a party I wanna to belong to. I don't agree with this one, I don't agree with that one. There's really sort of a, a, a frustration and maybe even despondency. Do you think that um, we need a new and more intentional 
Christian party or do we work in the two parties that exist? What, what's your thought of that? I would love to see a new party. I think that's very heavy lifting. Um, and, and I think we can start something different, but without having a party, I think Christians can come together in kind of a coalition that's in both parties, right? To say on certain issues, we disagree on some things, but there are maybe six or eight issues that we agree on. And we're gonna make sure that we come together and spoke, support candidates and issues that we agree on with uh, on, those, on those bases. Uh, so that's something that we can do. I think people make too much of party sometimes. And I think it's because we allow our identity to be a part of the party. If you ask me, I, I, I think that parties are tools. And so if you have some, you know, uh, I use, I'm, in, I'm a, in the Democratic Party, but I use it to do things in my community that I think should get done based on my faith. Um, and so I, we, you know, when, when somebody says they're a Democrat or a Republican, I think we can assume too much because not everybody in Christians shouldn't put our identity into the party. We should be able to separate ourselves from the party. One way to test that is, the, is if I have a critique or even a, an insult uh, for your party, do you automatically get offended? Well, I would hope that I don't automatically get offended because you're not talking about me, right? Mm -hmm. I, I may agree with you. I mean, there are some points that you may be right and all Christians should be able to do, about, do that. You know, uh, somebody talking about your, your, your party shouldn't feel like them talking about your mother, right? Mm -hmm. You should be able to separate yourself and be able to uh, think critically about whether their criticism are, is right or wrong. So when we separate ourselves, I don't think it's as big of a struggle to say, okay, I affiliate, affiliate with this party, I can vote for somebody else, but this may be the best tool for me to get things done. You know, you, you talk about thinking critically. Um, in your book, you talk about thinking Christianly. Uh, actually, uh, Justin, you're saying that this work of the Republic, this work of democracy is actually hard work engaged work takes time work why is it worth it oh it's worth it because so many great things can be done within politics whether we like it or not politics touches every aspect of society whether we can go to church or not right we've seen that during the covid crisis what our children are learning in school i mean i my oldest is six and i'm 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 starting to understand that he's going to spend more time at school than he spends with me. I, I want to know what he's learning. I mean, those things matter. What's in the food we eat? What constitutes a crime and how long people will be in prison for a crime? These are things that Christians should care about. As we know, the Bible is full of unjust imprisonment. Uh, without politics and without Christian engagement, slavery wouldn't have ended when it did. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that wouldn't be going on that, uh, that wouldn't have happened when they did. Uh, Jim Crow wouldn't have ended when it did if it wasn't for Christians saying this isn't right and we're trying to usher in the kingdom and we have a bigger you know we have a bigger um, purpose than this moment we have a bigger mission this than this moment uh, again we are talking about a very high view of politics here and people involved in politics you yourself are a person who has just given us an answer about why being in politics is so valuable I'd like to ask you if you have examples of politicians in the last 50 years that you have studied or you know, whether it's on the local level or on the national level, that exemplify or epitomize this kind of Christian leadership. Not a Christian nation kind of leadership, but a lay down your life kind of leadership. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I think somebody that every, I don't care if you're, if you're Christian, uh, whether you are conservative or uh, progressive ideologically, uh, I think someone like Katrina Jackson, Senator, State Senator Katrina Jackson in um, Louisiana, mm -hmm. 
I mean, this is she's a Democrat, but she's a pro-life Democrat, and she doesn't uh, hold anything back with that. She's a Christian that maintains her Christian, you know, maintains her Christian identity in politics. These are people that, if we want to incentivize people doing things the right, doing things the right way, we should all be supporting her. We should all be trying to help her rise to kind of a, a national um, status because that's what we, even if she's not in our party, that's what we want to incentivize. And so I think that's a good person. You know, somebody that I point out is on the other side is Jack Kemp. I think Jack Kemp did a good job. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we agreed on everything, but I, but I think he does, he did a good job of being different, saying, hey, I understand what my party wants, but I also understand that I have a different mission and purpose. And sometimes I have to depart from what my party is asking me for to get things done right. Uh, and so I think those are two pretty good examples uh, of people who we can look to, one in history, one that's going on right now, who are trying to do it the right way and just don't have enough support. I mean, we should feel some kind of way that somebody like Katrina Jackson just doesn't get as much support as she should or, or isn't somebody who we are highlighting on the national stage. That's something we all can do if we came together to try to do it. Yes. Uh, I also think that when you tell the stories of people who do this, this is what gives uh, individuals um, a real tangible example of what could happen and what did happen. And so you don't feel so alone when actually you see your values, your principles, your beliefs embodied in someone who's actually on the front line doing the work. So I think we've got to collect those stories and we've got to tell those stories um, over and over again. Um, what gives you hope, Dustin? that this kind of civic engagement you're calling for can take hold. We talked a little bit about needing another party. We talked a little bit just now about uh, supporting those people who hold these kinds of things. What needs to happen for this vision, this idea of compassion and conviction to take hold? What do you think it would look like in 10 years if it were to take hold? One of the things that give me hope, I'll be honest, is, is you and, and even the Trinity Forum allowing someone like myself to come have this conversation. Uh, I think it's important that people who may not agree on every single issue but share a faith have these conversations. And I see more and more we're having these conversations in a constructive way. But really what gives me hope the most is, is really at my church family and going back and speaking to people on the grassroots level. I mean, these people think a lot differently about the issues and their voices aren't always heard you know, on the meet the presses and the CNNs and all that stuff. But when you talk to them, there's a lot more nuance and how they think about the issues. And oftentimes they have a hope, right? And, and for me to go back to church and speak to one of the elders who might be a, a 75 year old uh, lady who just is looking at me as someone who's speaking on her behalf, that gives me hope to say, you know what? I can continue to go on. There's things that I can do. And I, I would also say some of the leaders that I'm seeing ar arise. I mean, you have people like, uh, Dr. Charlie Dates, you have people like Alan Noble, Dr. Alan Noble, uh, Esau McCauley, these are people, uh, Lisa Fields, these are people who are committed to the gospel and aren't trying to um, find validation in conservatism or progressivism, but are just trying to be faithful. And that really is an encouragement to me uh, to make sure that we keep going every day and keep trying to make these things better, even in times when it doesn't seem like uh, there's much hope. You know, um, I, I had just this kind of well of emotion as you were listing a group of people. And I, I think to myself, what if 10 years from now, or even better, five years from now, um, we're, being, we're able to list a group of people uh, that have committed to this ideal that we've been talking about today. So Justin, let me go back to you. 
here is a last word that's part of this Friday kind of conversation, a, a sentence summation, a new idea or a quotation that you would like to leave us with. Yeah, I would just say that uh, Christians should have a unique public witness. Uh, because we should have a unique public witness, we should not strive to be conservative or progressive, uh, but we should set out to be faithful, which will force us to critique and to challenge both sides, uh, to compose a, a, a civic witness that reimagines the brilliance of um, justice and moral order dancing in sync. So don't be beholden to ideological conservatism, but use it, right? Use the best parts of conservatism structure, but make it feel and make it relate. Uh, don't serve progressivism, but use it. Use it to change that which is oppressive and distorts the Imago Dei, but make progressivism respect that which is rightly unchangeable and to obey God's design. Christians have more common ground that we, than we could ever uh, ask for. We have the same uh, great commission, the same great commandment, and, and we have the same savior. The common ground is exactly with what our political landscape needs. We're on both sides of the aisle, and if we were come to, would come together, we would have the credibility to heal this land. Thanks for having me. Justin, thank you. Thank you for the calling on your life, what you're doing for your courage, and for your hope that you brought us today. And to all of you, thank you for joining in, and have a great weekend. Bye now.